This is episode number 232 with David Heinemir Hansen of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Goes, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan. I'm coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm also the CEO of Founder Magazine. If you're not familiar with Founder, we're a digital media company. We produce content, audio, video, written form on interviewing some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation, really producing the best content out there to help you guys build and grow a successful business. Um, I know it's the start of the year. I know you must be super pumped to just crush 2019. Uh, you know, we're going all out, all guns blazing with our content at Founder. We have so much cool stuff for you guys in store. Um, so today's guest, David Heinemir Hansen, uh, he's the co-founder of a company called Basecamp. Now, we interviewed his other founder, Jason Freed, last episode uh, in episode number 231. If you haven't, make sure you listen to that because it is a really, really interesting episode and you'll get to see the differences between how both Jason and David think about building businesses and also how they've been able to build this incredibly large bootstrapped company. Um, these are both prolific guys. So David is actually the creator of Ruby on Rails. Now, Ruby on Rails is a programming framework or programming language. Uh, you can tell I'm not a developer, but basically a lot of software is built on Rails now because of this language that David has come up with, incredible founder. Um, and I talked to him as well, just like how I did Jason last week about their latest book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. I also asked David about his latest blog post on Medium, which is actually an open letter to Jeff 
Bezos. Now, Jeff Bezos is the founder of a little company called Amazon, and he invested, or his his venture fund invested in Basecamp. Now, um, both Jason and David are very, very anti-venture capital, and you know, both Jason and David have shared with me during these episodes why they took investment from Jeff and also where they currently stand with their thoughts on, you know, Jeff Bezos and his thoughts on, I guess, growing a company and, you know, what he's doing right now with Amazon. It's it's a fascinating interview. You guys are in for an absolute treat. If you really want to understand what it takes to build and grow a successful business, but, you know, working at not insane, you know, ungodly, glorified 80 to 100 hour weeks, which what is what basically the public or the, you know, society tells us as founders, then this might be a really refreshing interview for you. Um, You guys, like I said, this guy's an incredible founder. So is his co-founder, Jason Freed. So if you haven't listened to the first uh, of, I guess, this two-part series, interviewing both Jason and David, make sure you do. Um, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. Uh, and also make sure you share with us on at founder um, just posting your story or something that you've listened to this podcast. We'd love to hear when you're listening and enjoying these podcasts. Make sure you go and check out the guy's latest book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. I'm really, really pumped. I've got my copy on the way. So guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. So uh, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? Funny story. So I was in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, I was in school at the time. I just started my um, Copenhagen Business School degree in computer science and business administration. And I was a big fan of this small design company based out of Chicago called 37 Signals. And 37 Signals was started in 1999. And they had a blog right from the get-go called Signals versus Noise. And on that blog, in about 2001, uh, Jason Fried, one of the original founders of the company, posted a question about some PHP stuff, how to learn uh, some aspect of programming. And here I was sitting in my little apartment in Copenhagen, Denmark, thinking like, hey, I know the answer to this. I've been following these guys for years. I really respect and like and am inspired by the work that they're doing. Now I have a chance to give something back. So I wrote Jason back, just sent him this cold email. He didn't know me. I didn't know him beyond just reading the blog. And I started just explaining his question as well as I could. We started trading emails, bounced a few back and forth. And after I think maybe 10 emails back and forth, Jason decided it was easier just to hire me than to learn how to program. And that's how we started working together. And this is uh, about 18 years ago. Yeah, wow. And how, like... You know, you, you you're quite prolific, uh, especially in the in the development circles, just because uh, you you know you you created Rails. Um, how how did that come about? Yeah, so Ruby on Rails was kind of a continuation of meeting Jason and starting to work with him. Because a couple of years into our partnership, um, I'd been working with PHP at the time. 
we had the opportunity to create something new together. We weren't working for a client that dictated what the technical platform had to be. So in 2003, we started work on what became Basecamp. And since this was an internal project and I had basically freedom of choice to pick the tool that I wanted to use, I had been learning about this small little programming language out of Japan called Ruby that a number of influential Western developers were talking about but weren't really using. So when I had this freedom of choice to pick, I was like, well, let's give this Ruby thing a try. There's a lot of influential people who seem to think it's pretty great, but they just don't have the opportunity to use it in a commercial fashion. So I started using Ruby, uh, starting to even learn Ruby uh, as part of the creation of Basecamp. And after a couple of weeks, I was just completely sold. Ruby was just a revelation for me. It was really the turning point where I went from programming being just something I did to create software to being a calling in a sense, um, a vocation that I could see myself doing the rest of my life. So I had this epiphany with Ruby and I started working with it. And at the time, Ruby was not popular at all in the West. There were very few programmers working with it commercially. So I had to build a lot of the stuff that I needed to build a web application in Ruby by myself. And that's what I did. I started building block by block until I had enough of a toolbox that we could create Basecamp in it. And after we had created Basecamp in it, I thought, hey, Ruby is so great. I've just had this revelation discovering this wonderful programming language that was focused on creating programmers who love their work, happiness, all these things that people weren't really talking about at the time. And I wanted to help promote that and get that out to a wider audience. So I took my little toolbox and I called it Rails and then I shared it for free. I turned it into open source, started distributing it in 2004. And it didn't take too long before there were ton of other programmers who saw the light, bright, shining Ruby that I had discovered too through Rails, and they started working with it as well. And today, we, Twitter was started on Ruby on Rails. We have everything from GitHub to Shopify running on Ruby on Rails today. Uh, it's just been a magical ride, and, and I'm still at it. I've been working on Ruby on Rails for, I think, about 16 years now. We're just coming up on our 6.0 release after 16 years. I continue to use Ruby almost every day and I continue to create everything we do at Basecamp in Ruby on Rails. Yeah, amazing. And uh I'm not I'm not a developer by trade, but uh the yeah, I, I tried. I I tried uh doing a Ruby on Rails course. I, I couldn't quite get there, but um for, Don't let that yeah. knock you down. I, I needed to do several tries before I learned how to program. I think I learned, I, I tried to learn programming at least three times before it finally clicked. And when it clicked, I was, I think, almost 20 years old. So this was not something of a child prodigy process. I think there's often this stereotype that to become a good programmer, you have to start at eight years old, which is complete and other bullshit. There are people like me who learn how to program when they're 20. There are other people who learn to program when they're 30. There's people who learn to program when, in their 40s. It's absolutely not something that's going to hold you back. You can accelerate your learning 
with programming incredibly quickly, and many people have. But I get it. it. It's still tough. I still remember some of the logical and technical challenges I would wrestle with and, and which forced me to give up. But uh, once it finally clicks, it's it's like magic unlike uh, just about anything else. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Look, it's it's an incredible thing you guys have created, um, and and everything you guys are doing. So, I, I'm curious. I I have to ask you. I read your latest one of your latest blog posts around, uh, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and 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 the fact that um, you think that uh, you know that 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 things are, are not going to work for him. I, I would you like to comment on that? Yeah. So. Our relationship with Jeff Bezos goes back to 2006, uh, two years after we had launched Basecamp and created a number of other products. Um, Jeff Bezos' team and his investment group reached out to us, and our first instinct was to tell that team the same thing we told all the other 30 venture capitalists and, and other forms of investors and acquisition sniffers, um, thanks but no thanks. We weren't looking for capital to raise for our company. It was growing just fine based on revenues alone. But there was something, I don't know, at the time that made us think, let's at least hear the man out. Let's see what Jeff's interest is in our business and and why he's interested in it. And that eventually led to Jeff purchasing a minority stake in Basecamp from Jason and I personally, not to put money into the company, but to put money into the pockets of Jason and I and giving us that ballast and security to go the distance with the business without handing it over to a group of venture capitalists that would put the whole thing on a timeline and attach a time bomb where we either had to go IPO or sell the business in some amount of time. We ended up with a pretty unique deal, I'd say, with Jeff, in part because at least as I took it, this was kind of a hobby. I mean, the purchase he made from Jason and I was jump change to Bezos, even though to Jason and I, it was a very material change between sort of doing fine to all of a sudden becoming millionaires overnight. And that deal really helped us just sort of pursue that long-term vision. That now that there was just that little bit of ballast on our personal bank accounts, the appeal of selling the company to, I don't know, Google or whoever, or um, taking venture capitalists to really blow it up, really subsided and disappeared, in fact, and allowed us to just pursue this vision of building a wonderful company that we would want to work in for the long term that could do all these weird things we're doing, like saying no to continued growth or doing a hiring freeze the year we reach our highest revenues or any of all this weird stuff that we've been doing over the past um, 15 years or so. And also at the time, I'd say uh, the appeal of Jeff's involvement was in part that he was different than us, that um, he had gone a very different path, obviously, with Amazon. Yet I think perhaps at the time it was in a little bit more of an innocent, nascent phase, even though Amazon at that time obviously it was already huge and it had been around for uh, for a decade it wasn't what it is now and i think uh unfortunately the actions that amazon have taken over the last uh few years not as flattering 
um, this rosy picture that we had of, uh, of of Jeff back in 2006, it, it just looks a little different. It's a little more nuanced and gritty and perhaps not as appealing to us. Now, knowing what we know, which is the same as everyone else, we don't have any special access. Um, in the early years, we used to talk to Jeff about once a year, but we haven't talked to him, uh, I think, probably in like seven or eight years personally, which is, I mean, of course, we're this tiny little fish. He's the richest man in the world. Uh, I get that um, we're not exactly at the top of his uh, list of priorities, which is also totally fine. We we both got, I think, out of the deal when we wanted it. Um, we got that security on a personal level to go distance. He got to have fun and be involved with the project, plus a very nice return. We paid Jeff back, I think, five or six times over, and he still owns his stick company. So it clearly was a good bet on his side as well, just on the economical terms. But I think it's unfortunate that um, given where Amazon is now and given where Jeff is personally, that there isn't more of a sense of what can we and I do for society um, on a positive level. I think it's a little, little sad what's been going on with the HQ2 process, with the collapsing of markets in all sorts of domains with the predatory behavior that Amazon is exhibiting, um, it's a bit of a shame. And I hope that if we get a chance to talk to Jeff at some point in the future, we can kind of uh, dive into that and, and ask him some uh, some questions of why he chose to go that path, because it just doesn't align with our values at Basecamp or, or just even the personal values of Jason and I or how we try to run our business. Um, so that's where we are at the moment. Disappointed. Yeah, it was an interesting blog post. Um, and I guess what, what's also interesting is if, if you look at uh, the way that, that Jeff looks at a business, he, he's very, very aggressive on growth. It's like, my, you know, he's famous, you know, my, my margin, your, your margin is, is my, my, um, my leverage. And he, he would just, just, you know, he's very, very aggressive on growth. Um, where you guys and I and I love your philosophies, and I'd love to talk to you about, you know, your your uh, I guess you're in you're in Jason's uh, thoughts and experiences on on growth and on bootstrapping and and on scale and and you know and and your latest book it doesn't have to be crazy at work and um it, it you know it, it is quite different to to how Jeff um, approaches business in many ways right. Yes, and the topic of growth, I think, is about 180 <laughs> degrees different. Um, we're very much about running a sound, sustainable, profitable business. We've been profitable every single year since the inception of the company back in 1999. So on that topic, we probably couldn't disagree more. And perhaps even more importantly on the topic of growth, I think that um, – this ferocious appetite for growth that Amazon has um, has reached a point where it's actively harmful to uh, not only society at large, but I think even Amazon on the long term. I don't think that any company is well served over the long term if they actually end up capturing a market to the point where they have a full and dominant monopoly like Amazon has in several areas of its business. And I think that's where this automatic um, 
approach to growth, that more growth is always better and having more market share is always better, really hits a point where it breaks down. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad aspiration to have when you're an upstart and you're um, just trying to make something work and you have uh, goals in the cloud. The problem is if you actually end up reaching those goals like Amazon has and, and other companies have, right? I, I think we're in an era right now of big tech strangling markets in all sorts of shapes and forms in ways that are reminiscent to me of the uh, very unfortunate chokehold that Microsoft had on several markets back in uh, the mid to late 90s. And I think society is just not served of that. And if society isn't served of that, I don't think the individual company is served by that. So that's definitely a point where we, we disagree. I find that there's a lot of other particularly tactical approaches to things that Jeff has that I really admire and respect and we continue to use. In fact, we quote one of his um, ideas in the new book that's called Disagree and Commit, which is this concept of um, avoiding that everything boils down to consensus. When you're trying to make a decision at a business and you might have five, six people around the table, if the only way out of that conference room is a consensus, you're going to end up in this... Um, nasty fight of endurance and you're going to end up with lots of i think uh resentment that people perhaps at the end will just concede even though they don't really mean it if you're just upfront about the fact that one person is going to make this, this decision and that everyone else can disagree but once the decision is made they're going to commit to the decision and carry it out and we're going to make the best of it I think you end up with a far healthier organization. And that was one of the tactical ideas that we took from Jeff. Uh, another one that always stands out in my mind is invest in things that don't change. It was a really powerful statement that we got from Jeff in the early days. This idea that um, Amazon as a business, he was using his example, can build up these advantages by investing into the basics like fast shipping, for example. Is, is any customer going to wake up tomorrow and think, oh, I'd like my my purchases to arrive later. It'd be great if it took five days instead of two days. No. Every investment that they make into fast shipping is an investment that's going to be relevant 10 years later. And we've taken that to heart as a, as a web business around a multitude of areas. For example, performance. There's never going to be a time where someone wakes up and thinks, oh, I, I wish Basecamp was slower. So all of the investments we make into things like performance, whether it's on the back end or whether it's on the front end or in our design or what have you, those are investments that's going to pay off for the long term. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember reading that. That's really interesting. So so talk to me about the the latest book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. It's a good title. Um it scares me a little bit, to be honest, because uh, uh, you know we. I, I love your guys' philosophies at, at Basecamp, and uh, I, I, um, you know, I believe in them. Uh, I, I believe in some of the things that you guys say, and I'm practicing it. Like you know, we're we're 100 uh, percent bootstrapped, and you know, we're we're not looking for investors, and we are profitable. We're, we're we've got a great business that is good at making money, but at the same time, we do have aggressive goals and uh, we want to grow in a, a sustainable way, but at the same time, um, don't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, want to, want to take the market, but at the same time, you know, it, it is crazy at work sometimes. Yeah, I think 
the reason we wrote it doesn't have to be crazy at work was in part to set out a beacon, an alternative beacon, because almost all entrepreneurial literature and role models are all about the crazy. They're all about work as many hours as you can, grow as fast as you can, um, sort of jump all these hoops, cut all these corners, run fast and break things. That's been the predominant narrative for quite a long time. And I think that that narrative just seeps in. It seeps into your assumptions and your defaults to a point where you don't even question it. Don't even question whether it's good or bad. And we really want to question that because at Basecamp, it isn't crazy at work most of the time. I mean, ironically enough, it's actually been a little bit of a crazy week. Last week in particular, we had an outage that uh, was as bad as, as anything we've had in, in, in about 10 years. And we've had some other issues. So occasionally it is crazy at work, but that should be the exception. That should not be the norm, and it certainly should not be the aspiration. So when you say, for example, that you have aggressive goals, it's one of those things we tackle in the book. At Basecamp, we basically don't have any goals. We have some very vague uh, top-level goals of we want to make a good product, we want to be a great place to work, um, we want to treat our customers with dignity, honesty, and kindness. But these aren't things that in most cases can be successfully measured. And that leads me to one of those things. Um, there's a famous saying, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, which is just utter bullshit. <laughs> most of the key important aspects of a business, like the things that I just mentioned, the, the primary operating principles are extremely hard to measure. And if you try, you often end up making things worse. Um, so what we try to do is explicitly, as we say in the book, our goal is no goals. We don't try to trace these uh, particularly monetary milestones because they never end. So when you start getting into a habit of setting aggressive goals, what happens when you meet your first aggressive goals? Do you then just declare victory and pat yourself on the back and then go back to a calm lifestyle? No, you don't. You set yourself another aggressive goal. And that goes on and on until you're simply exhausted on this treadmill of goals. And for what? Why are you doing that? Having some broader perspective that's not just about reaching or breaching certain metrics, I find it's just a more wholesome, healthy way to live and work. And you can still do really well. I mean, Basecamp as a business, we have over 100,000 paying customers. We're generating tens of millions in profits every year. Things are good. Things are great. And we did not need financial milestones and goalposts to get there. We simply followed these underlying principles of making a good product that we would want to buy and then thinking there's probably going to be other people like us. And let's build an audience around those people who are like us or at least like our message. Let's be fair and generous to our employees and let's treat our customers well. It really doesn't have to be that complicated. And I find that a lot of entrepreneurs end up making things harder on themselves than they need to be and putting straight jackets on, particularly around growth and particularly around growth based goals, where they end up just making themselves and everyone around them miserable and for no good reason at all. This is all imaginary. If you have a goal of, say, a million dollars, that goal could just as well be $800,000 or it could be $1.5 million. People often forget that goals are just figments of your imagination, you're making that shit up. And you might as well just make up some different shit. And why would you feel bad about 
just the shit that you've made up. Mm. Yeah, I love it, man. So, I, I one one question I wrote down to myself um, that that I have to ask you then is: if you guys don't have any goals, how how do how do people in in the base camp team know or individuals know what success looks like? That's a great point as well. I think when you define success in terms of these binary ideals of a monetary goal that's either reached or not reached, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. For me, success is doing the best job that I can. And that best job is most of the time powered by an internal barometer of intrinsic motivation. Most of our designers, not most, all of our designers know and feel in themselves when they've done a good job, when they've uh, made a design that feels cohesive and so on. So sometimes you get calibrated and sometimes the stuff that you think is good, the marketplace will then reject. And, and that happens as well. But as a primary driver of what success looks like, I find that these, uh, these goals are not helpful. They're actually quite hurtful in that regard. And you end up feeling bad about yourself when you shouldn't and feeling good about yourself when you shouldn't. When these goals are just these, as I said, imaginary picks you should feel bad about only growing, let's say, 50% year over year if your goal was 70% or 2% year over year if you're already in a great place and your goal was 5% or you should feel wonderful because um, you're growing 12% when your goal was 10%. This is so arbitrary. And I don't think that it's healthy to tie your sense of self-worth and success to these arbitrary goals, which in many cases you actually have a somewhat limited influence on. There's all these other factors that are outside of your control that dictate whether um, you're going to meet those goals or not. And it's just delusional, I find, that people think, well, I can do it all by myself. And even if you could do it all by yourself, maybe you're doing it in unhealthy ways where you're forming harmful habits and patterns that are going to come back to haunt you. So even if you did meet this um, one goal and you get to clear success and pop a champagne bottle. What's going to happen next quarter and the quarter after that? Once you're stuck on this treadmill uh, with a carrot dangling in front of you as your barometer for success and contentment, it's very hard to get off. Mm, yeah, no, look, something that you said just before did resonate with me a lot was um, around the fact that when you tie, you know, these, the, you know, numerical goals, because they're easy to measure. And if you don't hit them, that, that actually, like you feel really down and, and you shouldn't like, uh, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't let your, like the, you know, the, the, the progress, let's just say of your work, uh, affect how you're feeling. Like you should be able to, to detach from that. And, um, I think a lot of people listening would definitely feel that. Absolutely. And I think that that's what, there's so much of it. We go to work for at least in many cases, eight hours a day. And, and some people unfortunately go to work for much longer than that. That should be a pleasurable experience. If you're coming to work and you're doing a damn good job, you're doing the best job that you know how, then that should feel good. I mean, the fact that someone else outside can referee over that because you're meeting these goals or not. And oftentimes these goals are extracted from looking at other people they become this death of enjoyment by comparison you look at like mm. oh there's this other company that's doing so and so well we're not doing quite as well let's feel bad about ourselves what 
For what? They might be a miserable company to work at, even though they're having quote unquote success. Uh, I don't think that the, this is as, as binary as many people like to believe. In fact, at Basecamp, um, we've been very explicit about saying we want to limit growth and we want to have goals around sticking in this happy place where we are right now. We're just over 50 employees. We don't want to be 150 employees. We don't want to be 200 employees. That is success to us, being able to set our own agenda and control our own destiny and have this sense of independence. And if that means giving up on being a mega company or having a few more millions in our bank account, that seems like an incredibly worthy trade. That's interesting that you guys would not want to hire more people because you you, you could do more for your customers though, right? Yes and no. I think in a lot of cases, um, the companies that do worst by their company, their customers are the biggest companies. Lots of companies absolutely turn to shit when they grow. And the bigger they get, the more divorced they get from their customers, the less able they are to relate to them, the more layers of management and indirection that harms empathy and kindness the whole way down the chain gets inserted. I think usually if you talk to customers and say, hey, do you like dealing with, let's say, a big telecom company or do you like dealing with a small shop around the corner? Most people would probably say, well, I really like the small shop, right? They're not going, oh, I, I love these big telecom companies or I love these big mega corporations. There's no love for size. There's plenty of love for a personal human connection. And I think that that's often underestimated that what customers want in many cases is some sense of relationship and some sense of connection to the business that they're dealing with. We just had a very difficult week last week. On Thursday, Basecamp was stuck in this read-only mode for about almost five hours where people could get to their data, but they couldn't write new data. And that was, that was pretty bad. Yet, because we approached the situation with humility, grace, and human connection, kept people in the loop. I was writing people directly. Um, all of the team was sort of involved in, in making things right at a very personal level. We came out of that with several customers, perhaps even the majority of people who at least interacted with us, feeling better about the relationship they had with Basecamp, not worse. That's not a common outcome, I'd say, of having trouble. And I think that outcome is very much predicated on the fact that we were developing and nourishing those human connections. And those are just incredibly, you can't have a human connection with a company of 50,000 people. It just doesn't work like that. So I think we do better for not only our customers, but for sort of our whole industry when we are and remain a small company that can treat um, customers in the way that only a small company can do, make the exceptions that only a small company can do um, and not be bent on growth. And besides, doing more in itself is not a barometer of success. There's plenty of companies who just push out tons of product. Uh, who's, who's that actually helping? If we're making, let's say, just one product, let's say just Basecamp, and making that really well, do you really want us to make a lot of other crap? Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough for a company to simply say, hey, this is our product. We're making it really good, but this is what it is. And I find that actually a lot of products end up better 
when they're made by small teams rather than diluted by big teams. In the beginning of Basecamp, we used to get asked all the time, aren't you afraid that Microsoft or whoever the big company Pokemon was at the time was going to come in and steal your business because they could just throw so many more developers at it and designers at it? And we were like, absolutely not. Microsoft will make the kind of software that takes 50,000 people to make. They won't make the kind of software that takes four people to make. They can't make small software. They can only make big software. And a lot of the times what you need is small software. A lot of the time, the disadvantage of a big company is that they're incapable of small, solving small problems. They can only solve these huge problems. And most problems in the world are small. And we're very happy to continue solving those small problems. That's really interesting because – so one thing that I find, and, and I'm sure many people uh, listening can relate to this, is something that shouted out at me is um, it's exciting to do new things. And uh, there's something that's uh, called like I think it's shiny object syndrome that, that a lot of founders have where it's exciting to do something new. And you guys – been very very focused for a very very long time how like how do you how do you moderate that like wouldn't it be fun to 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 create another product or like you know you know where i'm going with this absolutely and we have that same draw as does anyone else and in fact in the history of basecamp we have created quite a few products especially in the early days we were launching a product about every year so we launched Basecamp in 2004. Then I think we launched Backpack in 2005. And we launched uh, Campfire in maybe also 2005 or 2006. And we launched something called High Rise after that. We've launched a lot of products over the years. But what happened was just that Basecamp kept growing and it kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, and we kind of felt like of, of all the places we could put our attention, Basecamp felt like the one that was most deserving. It was the product that we used the most internally, and it was the one that was really taking off. But even Basecamp, we've rewritten the product entirely um, two times. We're on version three of Basecamp, where every single version that we pushed out has been a complete rewrite from scratch, where we took basically our very best ideas and put them into a new version, a new spin on the same problem domain. Um, we still maintain all these versions of Basecamp. So we have the original version of Basecamp that we sold from 2004 until 2012. That's still a large share of our business, maybe even some 20 plus percent of our business, even though it's a product we haven't sold in, uh, what's that going to be, over six years now. So we get to keep those things. And yet we also get to put our best ideas into motion. And in fact, we're working on new product ideas right now that aren't directly related to Basecamp. And sometimes they just end up being explorations that we then funnel back into Basecamp. But sometimes they also end up being things like a spinoff. Um, a few, well, actually, I think about four years back, we created a product called Know Your Company, which is this survey product for um, talking to your employees and, and getting the real scoop on what's going on inside your company. And we spun that off after having worked on it for, I don't know, nine months or about a year. And it's today run by a small team of just two people. And they're running a great little business there. And we got to explore a bunch of new product ideas, which then fed into uh, what became Basecamp 3. And we're doing the same now. So just because you kind of commit 
to a major idea such as Basecamp doesn't mean that you stop working and it doesn't mean that you stop chasing the best of your new ideas. But sometimes those things then end up just being experiments. Sometimes they end up being small spin-offs. Sometimes they may end up being a new product that you run for a while and learn something from. Uh, and sometimes they just end up being new ideas that we would use for, say, Basecamp 4 whenever that day comes. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Just trying to understand, I guess, how with, uh, you know, your guys kind of value set around, you know, Karma's profitability, Karma's 40 hours of work a week, um, you know, Karma's smaller, Karma's a visible horizon, um, like how you audit that across, you know, some of the things that, uh, you know, we all feel like it's exciting to work on something new. It's exciting, you know, to, 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 I guess, see growth it, it is exciting and and uh it, it is quite contagious um there are a lot of people that are growth junkies and a lot of it is ego fueled as well absolutely and i think in that definition you're getting to at the end there's also a tinge there of you know what maybe the things that you're addicted to maybe being addicted isn't that healthy and maybe you can transition from being addicted to growth to being um, if not addicted, I don't think actually switching addictions is, is a healthy thing. But you, you can be inspired by making things better um, and making things more efficient. So, for example, the fact that we work 40 hours or less a week is a wonderful constraint. And it's a constraint you get to optimize within. I find I derive a lot of my enjoyment in product design and implementation around constraints. How can we make the best possible feature for example, if we set a boundary of six weeks to do it, um, in, in many ways, I'm a lot less interested and impressed by what people can come up with if they have unlimited time and unlimited money. It's not really an interesting problem space for me. What I'm interested in is what can two or three people do if they have six weeks? That's when creativity really kicks into high drive, when you learn something new, when you're forced to make tough and interesting decisions and when you're forced to weigh these trade-offs and that's really what's enjoyable about product development to me and, and that cycle never stops you can keep being interested and and engaged in that process that's a good distinction to make so you guys still have deadlines oh absolutely if anything we are, are, are more rigorous i think about those deadlines than a lot of other companies are what we do though is we don't base those deadlines on estimates. So a lot of companies fall into the trap of thinking, well, I have to make this whole thing in this amount of time. And how did I come up with the amount of time that I needed for it? Oh, this was an estimate. And then, of course, humans are terrible estimators, right? So you end up at the end of the estimate and you go like, oh, man, I'm out of time. Time. Now I have to work weekends. Now I have to work nights just because I made up this number in my head for how long this was going to take. I think that's a terrible way of working. How we work instead is we work with budgets. People are actually surprisingly good at spending budgets. Well, most people at least. And at least within a smaller margin of error than they have with estimates. So when you have a budget like, let's say, six weeks to do a feature, you don't just sit down and freewheel. Oh, what's the optimal version we could make of this feature? No, you sit down and say, well, I have six weeks. So how should we trade that off? How should we spend that time? And you do some intervals through that and like, oh, by week two, we should probably be done with the main definition phase. We should be narrowing down. We should be saying no to all the other ideas that 
are coming up, and we should be honing in on the solution. And you can get into a real rhythm of that where spending a budget is something fun. The constraints are actually fun. They're forcing these interesting trade-offs, and that's a great way of working. And it's also a great way of keeping a cadence of rolling out new improvements to the product. And you don't just end up in this trap, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of big companies end up with when they have unlimited time and they have unlimited money that they just go like, oh, well, we'll ship it when it's done, right? Especially in the gaming industry. This is just a joke. Duke Nukem Forever, any of these projects who got to run for six, seven, eight years because the company had been so misfortunate as to have a hit that allowed them to have no constraints. And then once all their constraints were lifted, they were simply incapable of coming up with a good creative solution again. Mm. So when you talk about your budget, do you mean cash or time? I mean time. I mean, they're sort of similar in the sense that uh, we'll often say on on feature development for Basecamp, this feature uh, can take, let's say, three people, six weeks. That's what we call big batch. When we're making a major new addition to Basecamp, uh, usually it's three people, one designer, two programmers for six weeks. You know, one thing that's interesting is in your culture, uh, it, it, is, it feels quite unique and it, it, it feels like it's kind of, you know, the word calm or chill, but that at the same time, you guys, you said that um, you guys are very, very, I wouldn't say bullish is the correct word, but you, you, you are, uh, how would you, you, you're very big on deadlines, right? Um, so wouldn't that create pressure? I think it could if you don't uh, approach the idea of the budget as a tool that's there to help you. It's there to help shape your decisions. It's not there to beat anyone over the top of their head. It's not there to play a blame game. Uh, It's there to be a helpful constraint and guide for product development. And once you get into the swing of it, I think actually it takes a lot of the pressure out because a lot of product development boils down to, oh, uh, how far should we go? How much should we build? And you can settle a lot of those discussions really quickly when it comes down to like, that's a great idea, but we have three weeks left and that's just not possible. When you have unlimited time left, then the sky is the limit. Then of course someone else can just waltz in and say, oh, I wish this also did that. And can't we just add this on too? I think actually budgets in that regard helps guard this sphere of calm because it's so much easier to say no. You're not saying no because you don't think their idea is good or not good. You're saying not right now because this is the budget that we have. And I find that a lot of people have an easier time accepting and respecting boundaries based on budgets rather than boundaries based on sort of ephemeral things of like, well, I just don't think that the product should have that right now. So I think for us, we've found that budgets and deadlines derived from budgets actually assist in the sense of calm, doesn't detract from it. Mm, Yeah, I see. Well, look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, Dave, or David. uh, Do you prefer Dave or David? David is good. David, yeah. Um, so talk to me around your culture. Like you guys have a very, very, I'd say a very, very strong culture at Basecamp and, and value set, which you, you know, you you talk about at length in this book. Um, but you guys are at a remote team as well. So how do you 
I don't know if scale is the correct word, but how do you make sure that that really, even especially for the remote, like if, like all of you guys are remote, like how do you really make sure that that gets pushed through throughout the company? That's a great question. It's probably one of the most common questions about remote work. How can you build a culture when you have remote work? And based on a misconception of what culture actually is, our definition of culture is repeatable actions. What you actually do, that sets the tone. It's not the foosball table. It's not even the uh, lunch table. It's not all these other kumbaya moments, although those are also helpful and, and good to have. But there's plenty of companies that have all of those things that still have an absolutely rotten and corrupt culture. The culture that we try to instill is through having some values and having some principles and then letting our actions actually derive from those things and letting the people within Basecamp see that there is a congruence between our principles and our values and our actions that we live up to the things that we say we're going to do and we do the things we're saying um, that we're saying we're going to do. But that is a reinforcing mechanism where someone within our culture can see, let's say, when we have problems, as we did last week, that we step up, we take ownership, we accept responsibility, and we are holding ourselves accountable. That trickles down. Nothing, I think, transmits the cultural values of a company more than seeing those actions, especially at hard times and especially when things are a little tense. Everyone within the company will internalize that and say, this is the kind of company that we are. And in fact, we use that as a measuring stick all the time. Is this the kind of company we are? Are we the kind of company that does X? And then we try to do better if we need to do better. And we try to reinforce those things. And the other thing is that we try to uh, record our culture. A lot of cultures are very ephemeral or they're only verbal, especially if they have been constructed in an office where everyone is in the same place. And then you have someone new coming into the culture and it's all just a big mystery. What is the culture actually here? What do we actually do? Well, at Basecamp, we like to write things down. We like to write in general, and we write a lot about our culture. So someone who joins Basecamp tomorrow will find an incredibly deep set of writings about who we are and what we value, and they'll have an idea of um, which bearings that they should take when they join our company. They can read a book like it doesn't have to be crazy at work, and then they can know that Basecamp is the kind of company that does not value people putting in 80 hours a week. So if you're a new employee at Basecamp and you think that that's how you're going to endear yourself to your manager, you probably will know that that is, in fact, not the case, and that's not how you do it. And you can take uh, you can take your cues from that. So I find that a remote culture in many ways is actually – better situated to building a strong culture because the culture will be derived even more explicitly from the actions you actually take and from the shared writings that you commit about those actions. And uh, I think that's certainly been true for Basecamp. As you say, I don't think a lot of people would look at a company like Basecamp and say, oh, they have a very weak or vague culture. Yet we've been a remote company from the start. We've never been a co-located company. There's been people who worked in the Chicago office for some time, but there's always been plenty of people who didn't. And I've always been remote. So clearly this is not just possible, but 
doable and, and I would argue even desirable. Mm. Would you say that you have uh, a, a low turnover of, uh, of, of staff? Oh, absolutely. If you look at our Basecamp.com slash team, you can actually see every team member at Basecamp and how long they've been with the company. And you'll find a lot of team members have been with the company for quite a long time. Uh, it's, uh, even in traditionally high-churn positions such as customer support, there's a lot of companies who have customer support departments, for example, where uh, the average tenure perhaps is nine months or 12 months or, or whatever. We have tons of people in that department. Now, another department that's been with the company for years it doesn't mean we have zero turnover. And even if you have a great culture and a strong culture, you're still going to have people who just want to do different things in their life. Or, for example, who don't, just don't click with remote work or whatever other factors you may have. Or through that we've made mistakes or we haven't made them feel welcome. That's all possible. But I think if you compare the average tenure at Basecamp to the industry average, which I believe is 18 months, we would favor incredibly well compared to that stat. Mm. And do you, do you have offsites? How often do you do offsites? So we meet up the entire company twice a year. And since we have a office in Chicago, we usually get everyone together in the office twice a year. And then individual teams uh, occasionally add another meetup um, in addition to that. So for a lot of people, it's three times a year. For, some, or for, for everyone, it's two times a year. I see. And and do you do hackathons when you're there? None of that or? Not really. I'm, I mean, hackathons, I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, say, working 24 hours straight. I don't think all-nighters is a good pattern and I don't think it's a good conduit for creativity. So not a big fan on those, but we do spend time working together. But since we do meet up so relatively rarely, we also spend that time simply connecting and recharging our social batteries with each other, playing games together or, or going to events together or, or sometimes working on things together and, and sometimes just sitting down and talking face to face together. I think it's uh, very healthy to connect on a human level in person occasionally. You just don't need to do it every day or every week or even every month. Uh, having these recharge sessions a few times a year have proven to be enough for the vast majority of people at Basecamp. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so look, we have to work towards wrapping up, David. Uh, one last question. Um, I, I've seen your office space. Uh, looks amazing, man. Um, I have to ask, are you a minimalist? <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing that you're referring to my own personal office. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, I, I I think that's a fair characterization. I get more pleasure out of um, slimming down and having just a few things that I like a lot rather than having a lot of stuff. So I, I get an incredible sense of satisfaction from getting rid of things, I'd say, um, and slimming things down. And that includes my office. Um, I get that there's this stereotype about um having an office that's covered in papers or whatever and 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 that's how you have a creative mind yeah I, I don't buy that at all i like having a completely clean office just with my computer and a bottle of water and that's pretty much all i need so yeah i definitely enjoy the clutterless 
slimmed down, minimalist setup in, in all aspects, not just on my desk, but uh, our house and life in general. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, I've seen. Yeah, look, it pretty. Yeah, it looks amazing. Uh, all right. And uh, last question is: Where's the place? Uh, best place people can find out more about yourself, your guys' new book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. Sure. So my stock answer to this is just to recommend my social media channels, and I'll do that. But I, I've been sort of having ever growing reservations about what social media is doing to us and what it's doing to me in particular. But um, if you're on it and, and if you haven't jumped off it yet, I'm, I'm still on Twitter at DHH. And I'm also on Instagram, although I don't know how much longer, at DHH79. And then uh, we have our wonderful blog, which we will continue for as long as the company exists at signalbnoise.com. And that's where you'll find a lot of our updated writings and the ideas that we end up turning into into books. And you can see an index of all our books at basecamp.com slash books. We've written four books over over the past 12 years or so. And, and the latest one is called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. It's out now in all major shops. And uh, yeah, if, if you liked any of the things that you heard us talk about there, um, there's a lot more in all those topics in It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Amazing, man. Well, look, thank you so much for your time and, and your contribution to the startup community. Uh, I, I really enjoy your reading, uh, re- reading your work, uh, everything that you and Jason put out. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool. It's really interesting. It's really refreshing as well. Um, so, yeah, look, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and yeah, appreciate everything you guys do. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on the podcast. This, this is great. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.